Just so you all know, there are some wonderful seats in the front row up here. If you're sitting next to someone who you don't know or aren't familiar with and you might think they might sneeze on you or anything like that, um, please um, you know, feel free to sit where you have some room. There's some space around, so uh, don't be embarrassed to get up and shuffle around. Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see uh, all these chairs filled again on such a day as this. If you don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I saw definitely quite a few new faces today, praise the Lord. Uh, if you are new or visiting, please do us a favor and go to calvarynapa.org. Take a look around and leave your information for us so we know how to reach you, how to contact you, uh, how to make sure that you have everything you need so it's a mutual benefit. So please go ahead and do that uh, whenever you have time, probably not during the sermon, before or after. Um, just a couple announcements today. We are going to, well, of course, we are having baptisms after the service, so extremely exciting. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah, me too. Um, so we are doing our best, our very best, with the Lord's help to begin operating children's ministry again in the near future. But as you all know, it cannot operate itself. And, uh, COVID, amongst other things, has been a big shakeup to a lot of our different ministries here, and so we are in need of volunteers, as we always are in children's ministry. Um, if you are at all feeling the prompting of the Lord to serve in the children's ministry, I'm going to put my wife on display for just a moment. If you could stand up, Michaela, in the yellow shirt. You can't miss her. The only yellow shirt in here. Um, <laughs> Please uh, go and, and bug her at some point during the day and let her know that you are super excited to work with kids. And um, if you are currently or were serving in the children's ministry at any point, um, there's been an email sent out with a YouTube video uh, kind of updating and explaining the situation of things. So if you've ever served before and would like to continue, please look for that from uh, kids at calvarynapa.org. And I believe Jessica Rainey is going to share... Some awesome stuff with us? All right, come on up. <laughs> Good morning, church. Good morning, ladies. Uh, my name is Jessica Rainey. I'm married to Pastor Rob, and I'll be taking over the women's ministry. We'll sh we're starting our first women's Bible study this Tuesday at 6 o'clock. Uh, it's on the book of First Peter. We will be meeting here at the church, 6.30 in the sanctuary, but we're going to um, attempt to Zoom in the ladies that aren't comfortable coming back yet. So we want to try to accommodate uh, everybody. And so I just ask for your patience with that. If you have a smartphone or a tablet or something, uh, bring that with you, and we're going to figure out how we can participate in discussion together. Um, the book is by Jen Wilkin. I don't know if we have a graphic for it, but you can just talk to me. Um, and if you don't have the book yet, you can go directly to the publisher, which is Lifeway, lifeway.com, and look up the Jen Wilkin First Peter study, and you can download um, the audio teachings, video teachings, or um, the book itself. So, um, but we would really love it if people could participate in person or over Zoom, but um, not doing it on your own, like meeting once a week and discussing about it. And it's a great book, especially right now. Uh, you know, Peter wrote this book uh, when he was imprisoned in Rome towards the end of his life. Peter, who denied Christ because he was scared, is writing this letter to the first Christians that were being persecuted. They were really suffering in a world hostile to um, the Christian message. And uh, God used him to speak into their lives about what it means to walk as a believer uh, in a world that really opposes your views and how you can still evangelize and your identity in Christ. And I think it's just really fitting for the times that we're in right now. So also it's only nine weeks, eight weeks of actual uh, study, uh, nine weeks of gathering. So I think we can make that commitment as women to come together and, and look to Christ and, and look to this wonderful epistle. So I look forward to seeing you there. If you have any questions, ask me or any of the ladies in the church, really. Um, they'll just point you in the right direction. So look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. All right. And with that, let's pray for today's service, if you would, with me. Father, we come before you, God, to thank you for what you are doing, Lord, for who you are for your great plan of salvation from before the foundation of this world, God. Thank you, Lord, that you have put your love on your children, God, that you've called us out of this world, 
that you've adopted us into your family, God, and that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you that you gave your son, Father, as a substitute, God, to satisfy your wrath on our behalf, uh, that we might be called the children, the sons and daughters of God. And as we prepare for uh, baptisms today, Father, we just give you glory, Lord. We thank you uh, for drawing these people to yourself, God, and for setting them free, washing them with the blood of Jesus. And we're just so, so grateful to be a part of it, Lord, as we see this full room of people that you have redeemed and called watching new life begin, Father. Uh, such a privilege. I ask, Father, that now as Pastor Rob uh, teaches from your word, God, that you, would, that you would bless your word as it goes forth, Father, that uh, you would speak to us now, that you'd prepare our hearts, Father, to hear your word, uh, to receive it, to be changed by it. I ask that you would speak through him, Lord, powerfully, and that you would move hearts in this room, God, that you would stir up affections for you, for your glory, and for your name. We thank you in the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every Lord's Day is a special day. When we gather together on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to gather as a family of believers, to worship the Lord together, to, to sit under the teaching of his word, it's always a special time. And so I'm grateful to God for you all. You know, I love you and, and I appreciate you every time that I, I get to see you. And I think, again, I can't say it enough, just being together, being in person, how special it is and what a gift from God it is to us. Amen. And regarding the baptisms, that's a very special thing. You know, we're seeing people coming to faith in Christ, lives being changed, lives being restored, and God's doing that here in our midst. And some of the guys today getting baptized are guys from our bridge program. You know, I've tried to keep you guys in the, in the loop quite a bit as to how that ministry is coming together. We launched it just a little over a year ago. It's a, it's a uh, residential faith-based restoration ministry. And so these guys, they come in and they commit to a year of living in this house and undergoing intense discipleship and, and fellowshipping with us here at this church and serving the Lord and we're just watching what God is doing in their lives. And we've already been able to baptize a few of these brothers, and we're going to baptize a couple more today. And so I'm just so proud. I'm so proud of you guys. I love you. I, I love to see what God is doing in your lives. And uh, I think we're all mutually excited to watch this together, are we not? And I want you to know, for those of you who have, who have supported this ministry, to, to see what God is doing, to see the, the fruit of it and to recognize that you're giving to a very worthy cause and that God is indeed blessing it. So I just praise the Lord for the generosity of those who have uh, caught the vision with us and have given to, to the cause. And I just pray that God would continue to move in the hearts of His people to continue to be generous towards that end because we've got a lot more we want to do. You know, we want to open up more houses. We want to see a women's house, second phase homes. And uh, it's, it's an ambitious thing, but I believe God is totally in it. And I think we all know that there is such a need uh, everywhere, but not least of which here in Napa. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be on the cutting edge of restoration ministry. Praise God for that. And then for the others that, that we get to baptize, Mia Mosley, uh, she's a young lady who has grown up in this church and to see God's blessing on our church in that way as we have young families here and there, there are children born, uh, not in this church obviously, but here at this church and they, uh, they grow up in this church and then to be able to baptize them, we get to see that. It's just such a glorious thing and I praise God for what He is doing in our midst and it is truly all to His glory, all to His glory. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 14? If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or in a chair nearby. Romans chapter 14. I'm not going to do the whole chapter. I really wanted to do the whole chapter. But you know, guys, I really am, believe it or not, making a, uh, a real effort to cut my sermon time down. And so I'm going to get there. It may not look like it. Um, but uh, I fought the temptation to do the whole chapter. Um, God is indeed merciful, and uh, He's going to have mercy on you today. 
And so uh, I am, however, very excited to share this text with you. It's so relevant. It's so practical. And God's Word is relevant, always relevant. And that's what I love about His Word. It was written so long ago, God has preserved it through the ages, and it's just as relevant for us today as it was nearly 2,000 years ago when it was, when it was penned. We're going to be talking about something that is sometimes called Christian liberty. Christian liberty. That is that we have freedom in Christ to, to enjoy certain things and, and to honor God and to glorify Him in, in a variety of ways. And sometimes there are disagreements about certain things. Some people see as permissible for Christians to do and, and others do not. And so, you know, I think sometimes when we come to church, some of us come with what I would call baggage or uh, tradition. If, you've, if you're new to church and don't have any background in church at all, sometimes that actually can be a good thing or a, a helpful thing. But many of us come in with presuppositions, preconceived ideas about how things should be or should not be. And we can have a variety of that in one church. And sometimes there can be a clash, as it were, that does result from that. You know, the church, or excuse me, the town that I am from originally has a, a very well-known Christian institution there, a very conservative uh, Christian university, and it used to be much more conservative than it is even now. And so to go to that school, you would be told what kind of music you can and cannot listen to, what kind of church you can and cannot go to, how your hair is to be cut, if a, if a guy and a girl are walking together, how many feet are to be in between them. Women must always wear dresses, never pants. Men can never wear shorts. You can never go to a church that has drums or guitars and on and on. You can't go to a restaurant that has a bar in it. You can't go to movie theaters and on and on and on the list goes. And that university would produce people that, that carry that same mentality into the community and frankly, that's how I viewed Christianity as an unbeliever. It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of religiosity. And I did not look favorably upon that. And we had all kinds of rumors that there were sidewalks in the school that were pink and blue, and the girls were only allowed to walk on one sidewalk and the boys on the other, all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. But that's how we viewed Christianity, and that's, that's very unfortunate because it, it is not. It is not uh, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Uh, it's, it's relationship with Christ. It's, it's uh, trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior and walking with Him in love faithfully, being led by Him. It's a living relationship. We interact with Jesus. We pray to Him. We read His Word, and, and we encourage one another in Christ as brothers and sisters, and we walk this walk together. And that is the Christian life. Well, that same baggage, those same traditions existed in the early church here in Rome where Paul is writing this letter. Same thing was going on there. And Paul is saying that there's no place for that because there was division. There was strife that was happening amongst these believers who had different, different um, traditions, different ideologies. And so Paul is saying, look, we have liberty in Christ. We have liberty in what we would call non-essentials. There are things that we can agree to disagree on and still be brothers and sisters. We can still get along. We can still love one another, and we should. Now, there are things that we would consider essentials to the faith that we cannot agree to disagree on. And the Bible is clear that if you call upon the name of Christ, there are certain things that you must believe and that you must do or must not do. But in the non-essentials, there is liberty. And we have to be okay with that, and we have to be able to allow each other to have that freedom in Christ and to answer to the Lord for their convictions, where, whatever they may or may not be. Because ultimately, we all have to answer to the Lord. And that's what I've titled the message today. We must all answer to the Lord. We have to answer to Jesus for our own convictions and, and how we walk. We don't answer to each other. You know, I did not die for you. Jesus died for you. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not to hover over you and tell you how you are to be. The Holy Spirit can do that just fine. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you to do it for each other. And so we have to allow each person to walk according to Scripture, according to their convictions, 
because ultimately we all have to answer to the Lord, right? And so that's, that's really the, the thrust of this text today, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So verses 1 and 2, I've titled this, Be, uh, Be Willing to Accept Other People's Convictions on a Matter. Be Willing to Accept Other People's Convictions on a Matter. So verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So it says that here we're to receive the one who is weak in the faith. And that is somebody who is hindered or stunted by tradition or baggage. They know that there are certain freedoms that we enjoy, but they can't bring themselves to that place. They're, they're stunted in that area. And Paul would say that they are a weak believer. And that's not meant to be a, uh, a derogatory thing. And I want to be real careful about that because I'm going to name some specific things and I don't want it to sound like what I'm saying is if you struggle with this particular thing, you're weak. Uh, so please, please understand in this, but there are a lot of things that fall under this category where we could split right down the middle and some people say, you know, that's okay and others say, no, that's not okay. And I'm not here to say that one side is weak and the other side is not, but this very much applies because there are a lot of these types of things in the world and, and within the church. And so Paul says we're to receive the person that is weak in the faith. And then he, he gives us an example of what, what is this? What's an example of this person who is weak in the faith? And he says one believes that he may eat all things and the other only vegetables. <clears throat> so that's why they're weak, because they eat only vegetables. You know, if they were eating some good steak and, you know, things like that, they would be strong. But instead, they've chosen to eat only vegetables. I'm kidding. Well, let me, let's get into this. There's definitely some historical context here uh, behind this idea of those who eat all things and those who eat only vegetables. So, uh, MacArthur, he says this, This characterizes those believers who are unable to let go of the religious rituals and ceremonies of the past. The weak Jewish believer had difficulty abandoning the rites and prohibitions of the Old Covenant. He felt compelled to adhere to dietary laws over the Sabbath, oh, excuse me, observe the Sabbath, and offer sacrifices in the temple. So you had the Jews that came out of Judaism. They had trusted Christ for salvation, but they couldn't quite break from the Old Testament laws, and they struggled with keeping the Sabbath and the dietary laws and observing the, the feast days and the festivals. And so they were, they were still being drawn back, pulled on in those ways. They hadn't experienced true freedom in Christ, freedom from the law. Well, then you also had Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he goes on to say, well, the weak Gentile believer had been steeped in pagan idolatry and its rituals. He felt that any contact with anything remotely related to his past, including eating meat that had been offered to a pagan deity and then sold in the marketplace, tainted him with sin. Both had very sensitive consciences in these areas and were not yet mature enough to be free of those convictions. So you have to understand in the ancient Rome and, and, and Greece, you walk through those cities and those towns and what you're going to see is a lot of pagan temples where they're worshiping these, these idols and these false gods and they would sacrifice animals to these deities and they would take uh, what was disposable, the carcass, the entrails, and they would burn it there on the altar to this god or, or a plurality of gods, and then they would take the choice meat, what was left, and they would sell it. They would give it to the meat market, and sometimes the meat market would be right there in the temple or adjacent to it, and they would sell that meat to the community. And so those who grew up in pagan worship Man, they struggle with the idea of eating meat because that may have been meat that was offered to a pagan god and sold in a, in a meat market, and that really defiled their conscience. Now, Paul has, he has told us elsewhere in the New Testament that we know there is no such thing as, a, as any other god. Our god is the only god, and those, those deities, those pagan gods are not gods at all. So that's good meat, man. Eat that meat. But for the person who can't break away from that, they grew up in that, to them that is truly sin. They feel like you are guilty of engaging in, in idol worship. And the, the Jewish believer would very much see the same thing in that. 
just a little bit more detail about this. I mean, the, the ex-pagan would be extremely affected by this because uh, MacArthur also says this, that the Greek and Romans were polytheistic. That means they worshiped many gods, but they were also polydemonistic. They believed in many evil spirits. They believed that evil spirits would try to invade human beings by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten, and the spirits could be removed only by the foods being sacrificed to a god. The sacrifice was meant not only to gain favor with the god, but also to cleanse the meat from demonic contamination. And so there was some real, you know, wicked and, and pagan type stuff that went into all of this uh, meat being sacrificed and sold in the meat market, and it just truly was a problem. People really were vexed at the idea of eating meat. And so you had people who said, that's it, I'll never eat meat again. I'm just going to eat vegetables from now on. And Paul refers to that person who refrains from eating the meat as the weaker brother. And it's not meant to be derogatory, as I said, but they've not come to the place where they could truly understand that they're free in Christ to eat that meat and they're not sinning against God by doing so. But to them it is sin because it was that real in their conscience. And so they, Paul would say, are the, the weaker brother. Well, he says that we're to receive that person. Receive that one who is weak in the faith. And that means to accept that person. To accept them convictions and all. Accept them convictions and all. The word receive it literally means to lay hold of with initiative. That is to initiate, to go after them. To, to grab hold of them. It, it means to grant access to one's heart. To allow them in. You're not closing your heart off to them. You're not pushing them away. You're, you're going after them and, and bringing them in because you're brothers. You're sisters. And they struggle in that area. And we have to be understanding. We have to understand where they're coming from. The same word Paul uses in Philemon 1.7 when he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And he says to Philemon, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. And so he didn't want... Philemon to just allow Onesimus back into his home. He wanted him to embrace him as a brother and to receive him in his heart. And so that's the idea. So we're to embrace the other believer. We are not to, to divide from other believers. And we are not to dispute, Paul says here, over doubtful things. We're not to dispute over doubtful things. Now what is that exactly? What is a doubtful thing? Well, the idea here is things that don't have a clear scriptural precedent or mandate. We can have a difference of opinion on these things. You know, the Bible is just not that clear, and there are many of those that we would call those gray areas. And so we may interpret the scriptures a little differently in certain areas. The scriptures are very clear in many areas on the essentials. The person and work of Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the church, personal holiness, obedience, serving the Lord, on and on it goes. There are things that are crystal clear to us in the Scriptures. But there are other things that aren't so clear, and those are what would be called doubtful things. So just to be clear, there are things that are clear in the Bible, and we must be obedient to those things. We have to take a stand in those areas, and we have to say we cannot agree to disagree on those kinds of things. Like, namely, I would say the person in the work of Jesus Christ. I'll just give you an example, you know, uh, not to pick on, you know, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, but they believe very different things about Jesus. I think the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was actually Michael the Archangel, and that he became Jesus, and now he has gone back to being Michael the Archangel. Um, you know, a variety of things. I think the Mormons believe that, you know, Jesus is just one of many gods, and he's the god of this world, and if you worship Jesus, then you'll become the god of your own world. Then the Scriptures just don't teach that. And so we would have to separate from them and say, that is not Christianity. That is not the Christ of the Bible. That's a different Christ. And if you're worshiping a false Christ, you're in big trouble. And so we have to take a stand on those kinds of things, you understand? But not everything is that crystal clear. So there is a time and a place when we must hold each other accountable. You know, there are things that you should have convictions about. And if you don't have a conviction about it and you do it anyways, then I would have to say, well, I think there's an issue, a deeper issue here. 
in your heart because the Bible is crystal clear on particular things. And if you're not bothered, if you can engage in this particular sin or, or whatever and not be grieved or convicted by that, then that's a whole other issue. So just recognize there are times when we must take a stand for those things which are clearly scriptural precedents and truth. But for the things that are not clear, it is purely a matter of conscience. So let's just, what, are, what would be some examples of that? I'd like to give you a few. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a very relevant list. And I think some of these things are very emotionally charged. And so it's not my intention to take one side or the other or to offend anybody. I just want to help us see just how, how much this actually goes on. Homeschool. Homeschool versus public school. Believe it or not, that battle does rage. And you got the, the public school people that pick on homeschoolers, and then you got the homeschool people who or, you know, those, those public school and, and on and on it goes. And I attended a church years ago and the pastor was teaching a series talking about living missionally on mission for Christ in whatever context you're in. And he talked about a family had moved, they moved into a difficult area, kind of a, a dangerous place. And they chose to put their children in public school and it was very difficult for their kids. Uh, their kids were um, bullied at times and picked on, but they began to develop relationships with these children. The, the children took on the mindset that they were on mission there in their school. They began to pray for these other kids. They began to have an impact on these children for Christ. And the pastor was just making the point that they were living missionally in that context. And it was hard for the parents to see what their kids were going through, but to see what their kids experienced as they began to have an impact on others for Christ. Just a tremendous thing. Well, the next week, the pastor got back up in the pulpit and told us that, unfortunately, there was a family that decided to leave the church because they felt like he was endorsing public school. And he said, you know, he was so grieved by that because that was not his intention. And it wasn't, he wasn't one way or the other on. He was simply making the case for living missionally. But some people take it that seriously. And so we do have that. Holidays. You know, some people say you shouldn't observe Christmas or Easter, where I'm from, you do not say Easter. That is like a cardinal sin. And so if I were to get up and say it's Resurrection Sunday, I've been rebuked many times for that one. <laughs> Some people say we shouldn't observe those things at all, but you know, Halloween, that's, that's really it. And so we used to have a, um, a yearly celebration out here in the parking lot where we would try to reach the community, and it was called uh, Light of Lights. And so we would have uh, bouncy houses and games and food and all of that and it was a great great blessing to the community so one year pastor bill when he was still the senior pastor here and i we were going to do this thing and we thought you know nobody knows what light of lights is you know what let's use the common language of the day here so we're just going to call it halloween and we didn't have a problem with that so it was a halloween festival and so we had a banner out there that said we were going to have this halloween festival and there were some people from another church that we partnered with um, that came to us, and it might as well have said we're having a devil-worshipping festival or something because they were mad, I mean, furious. And they're like, we will not partner with you in that. And so Pastor Bill had to go before that church and humble himself and say, so sorry, didn't know, and, and we were willing to kind of backtrack on that, so we called it the Light of Lights Festival, and it was fine. But those kinds of things do exist. You know, tattoos, tattoos. Um, I remember one time I, uh, a guy, I was on a work site somewhere, and this guy rolls up on a four-wheeler. We were kind of out in the middle of nowhere, Mennonite country. I don't know if you're familiar with Mennonites, but I mean, no sooner than he got my name and realized I was a Christian, he said, now let me ask you, did you get those tattoos before you were a Christian or after you were a Christian? And I'm thinking, that is a great way to make a friend, buddy, you know. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, those kinds of things, on and on it goes. Yoga, I mean, that's a big one. Not that I know anything about yoga, but I hear tell there are people that are into that, and there are people who have come out of that, and they're like, oh, man, you just don't understand. It's, it's evil, and, and it's, you know, Eastern mysticism and spirituality, and other people are like, man, I really love, I love to stretch, and, and I enjoy it, and I'm not doing anything evil. But then the other person's like, but you don't, even, you don't know. You are doing something evil, and you don't even know about it. And so that goes on and on. Alcohol, that's, that's a big one. Um, I would say that I was the weaker brother in that instance. Um, 
In the south, again, that's another one of those cardinal sins. Um, the Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. It does say that alcoholism, uh, getting drunk is, uh, but you can have a glass of wine or a, or a beer and it's not a sinful thing to do. But I've heard a pastor say, the Bible does not say that alcohol is a sin, but I will say it. Alcohol is a sin. And that's how they, they treat it, you know. But out there, like nicotine is, you know, totally acceptable. I, I had a lady tell me, and I've told you all this before, she grew up in a church where the pastor was smoking a cigarette while he was preaching. Cigarette hanging out of his mouth, praise the Lord. And so, you know, it's just these cultural things. Bible translations, King James Version only. And so there are some people that believe that if you got saved reading out of a Bible that wasn't the King James Version, then you didn't get saved at all because that's the only true translation of the Bible. Dress code, music, secular music, Christian music. Does your church have drums, guitars? There's the, the, worship, the worship battles and some churches say you should only have organs and pianos and, and anyone else, they're just worldly and ungodly. And then other churches say you shouldn't have any instruments at all. And if you have a piano and an organ, that's worldly and, and ungodly. And so on and on it goes. Medication for mental health, that's a big one. There are people who think that if you're a Christian, you should never take antidepressants or, or things like that. And there are others who say you absolutely should if the need is there. That's, that's a common grace of God. God has given us the understanding of medication and, and science to be able to uh, have these kinds of things available. <clears throat> and so there's a battle there. And I saved the best one for last, vaccines. You know, vaccines. And so traditionally... Um, for children, when you have children, um, man, you'll, you'll oftentimes have very loving and gracious people who will come to you and explain to you why vaccines are, are so bad and you should stay away from that. And you'll have others who will assure you that they're not, but that you should. And it's really a, a divided and hot thing. But I tell you, when this vaccine for the coronavirus comes out, we're going to see a whole new warfare you know, hit the church because we're going to have the vaccine people versus the non-vaccine people. And the, the non-vaccine people are going to be accusing the vaccine people of taking the mark of the beast or, you know, whatever. And I'm just telling you, this kind of stuff, it, it happens. It creeps into the church. It's here. It's coming. And we just have to be aware of the fact that we're going to have different feelings and convictions about a whole variety of things. And we have to answer to the Lord for our own convictions and our own conscience but we have to allow other people to have their own convictions in these matters because they too will answer to the Lord for their convictions. Amen? Amen. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And so um, note here that Paul does not call them to uniformity. He doesn't call them to uniformity. He doesn't say, okay, one of you needs to decide who's going to capitulate here, go to the other side and have everyone agree. He doesn't. He calls them to unity. We can be many different types of people with different convictions and different backgrounds, but we can come together and we can rally around Christ because He is the main thing, is He not? Is church not about Jesus? Is that not who draws us together as one? We are one in Him. That is the bloodline that we are of. The blood of Christ Jesus has saved us and washed us and made us a family. And we are a family in Him, and we are those who are united in Him. So, I've heard it said, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, charity. In the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, charity. Love, grace, understanding. All right, now I spent a lot of time on those first two verses, but we're going to pick up the pace here. So, Second point, we have to recognize that each person is accountable to the Lord. We need to allow people to have their convictions. And point two, we need to recognize that each person answers to the Lord for their convictions. Verse three, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? <clears throat> to his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. 
So don't despise the one who refrains from eating. You don't want to look at the person who says, I'm not going to eat that meat or whatever it may be. We're not to despise that person, look down on that person as though somehow they're inferior. Uh, we're to accept that person, embrace that person. Conversely, the person who, who does not partake, but then looks at the one who does, is not to judge that person. Because the person who does not partake, who, who is uh, stricter, may look at the other person and judge them. You know, they are uh, you worldly, carnal person partaking of that thing. I can't believe that you would do that. How dare you? And, and judge them. That can happen. And then the person who does partake can look at the other person and say, oh, you're just a legalist. You know, I've been set free and I'm going to enjoy my freedom and stop, you know, and, and that's the way that we can treat each other. So we're not to look down on, judge, criticize. For he says, God has received them both. Both persons are accepted by God and belong to him. This is a strong principle, and I've been convicted by this before. If I were really struggling in my heart towards someone else, and somehow I'm thinking that they're in some kind of an offense, then all of a sudden it occurs to me, you know what? They belong to the Lord. And God loves them and accepts them and is leading them and working in their lives. And so far be it from me to sit here and act as though I am high and lifted up and I am right and they're wrong and God's with me and not with them. Right? We have to recognize that we may disagree on certain things, but I answer to the Lord, they answer to the Lord. God has received us both. There's that word again, received. God has received us how can we not receive each other? How is it that God is going to receive your brother or your sister and you are not? You understand the, the, the disconnect there? And then he says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And again, that's another very strong principle. You don't answer to me. You answer to the Lord. You're not my servant. You're His servant. And so at the end of the day, it's not my place to judge you. You will stand before the Lord as I will stand before the Lord, and we will be judged accordingly. And so it's how I walked before the Lord. Was I obedient to the things that, I was, that, that affected me deeply, or was I not? And, and vice versa for you too. He says, for they belong to God. They are God's. God is able to make them stand, and He will make them stand. So they belong to God, they answer to God. Not me, they don't belong to me, they don't answer to me. Verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. <clears throat> Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, now we have those who are observing certain days and others who do not. And we have those who eat unto the Lord and those who do not eat yet unto the Lord. One person esteems a day above another. So, some, we, this is relevant here. We know people that would say Saturday is the day. Saturday is the Lord's day. That's the day that we should be worshiping the Lord. And then there are others who would say, no, I believe it's Sunday. Or there are others who would say, I worship the Lord every day. And so you may see one day as special, but I am far holier, for I see all days as special. You see, and we can do that. We can go there. You know, he observes one day to the Lord, the other all days. One person eats, another person does not eat. But they both do what they do, and they both give thanks God for it. So you have the one who eats, and he worships the Lord. He gives God thanks for those things that God has given him to eat. And then the other guy does not eat, and he gives thanks to the Lord and says, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there who eats. I'm just kidding. Okay, that's what we don't do. But the one person eats, and they worship the Lord. They honor God for providing for them so graciously. And the Bible says that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do it what? To the glory of the Lord, for the honor of His name. And if we refrain from eating certain things, thank you, God, that you've laid that on my heart. That's a conviction that I have before you. And, God, you have caused me to stand. You've given me the ability 
to obey that conviction and to not partake in that particular thing. And I give you glory, and I thank you for that. And so whether we eat or don't eat, observe one day or not, we still do it as unto the Lord. And we have to allow each other the freedom to do that because what? We all answer to the Lord. He says, however, that we should be fully convinced in our own mind. Let each be fully convinced in their own mind. And that's an important principle. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it, and then you need to be true to that. Be true to that conviction. If it is real for you, then it is real, and you need to honor God in it. But you need to know why you believe that. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? And then just go for it. Honor the Lord in that conviction. And that's what Paul is saying. Both are okay. If you want to observe that day, if you don't want to observe that day, just know what you believe. Let yourself be fully convinced of it and honor the Lord in it. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul says no one lives to himself. No one dies to himself. We are all living unto the Lord. We're not living self-centered lives. We're not supposed to be. Every day that we live, we are living as unto the Lord. Not for ourselves, but for Him. The Christian life is not to be lived to ourselves, but to God and others. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, I love this. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, <clears throat> which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul's mindset was very much others and the Lord. He's like, you know, to live is Christ. As long as I'm here, I am living and serving Him. To die is gain because I get to go and be with Christ. If I stay here, this is good for you because I can serve the Lord and bless you guys and, and pour into you. So Paul lived through that lens. He was living to the Lord and he was living unto others. And then Paul says, to this end, Christ died, rose again, <clears throat> excuse me, rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of all. I want to just, just take that in. To this end, Christ died, rose, lived again, that he might be the Lord of all. That's the gospel, folks. What we're talking about here is everyone belongs to the Lord if you have trusted Christ and you answer to the Lord. And that's what the gospel is all about. And this is the gospel. Christ lived. The, the active obedience of Christ. Sometimes we, I mean, we do. We think a lot about the death of Christ and what He endured on the cross, the agonies of Calvary. But have we ever stopped to think, what about those 30, 33 years that led up to the cross? Perfect obedience. A sinless life. Perfectly obedient to his earthly parents, to the law of God, we call that the active obedience of Christ. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. He lived the life that we want to live, that we desire to live, but we have failed miserably and continue to fail to live. He lived that life for us. And then his, his passive obedience is sometimes referred to was where he died upon the cross and God's judgment was poured out on sin on Jesus. And so Jesus lived the life that we could not live and that life is credited to us. God sees the righteousness of Christ in us. He sees the perfect life, the perfect righteousness of Christ in us who have believed on Christ. And our sins that we have committed, that we have sinned, were put on Christ on the cross, and God poured out His judgment there on the cross, and our sins were forgiven. They were washed away. They were judged there on the cross. And for that reason, Christ lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. He rose again from the grave three days later, showing that He was indeed who He said that He was, the Son of God, the sinless perfect Son of God, and that God accepted His sacrifice, if He was a sinner, what would have happened? He would have went in that grave and stayed in that grave. But He was righteous. He was innocent. He was worthy, and He was accepted by God. So He rose again from the grave, uh, the grave 
declaring victory over sin. And so that has now been given to us. We have Christ's righteousness. Our sins were paid for there on the cross. He died in our place. He died as a substitute for our sins. And now we belong to Him. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, your sins are gone. They are removed. Past, present, future, washed away, judged on the cross. Christ's sinless perfection, the life that He lived, has been accredited to us, and now we belong to Him. We bow the knee to Him. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. And that was what this was all about. Jesus died for us so that we would live unto Him. May I say that again? Jesus died for us that we would live unto Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been purchased, brothers and sisters. If you have called upon the name of Jesus, if you have trusted Him for salvation, if you have asked for forgiveness, if you have surrendered your life to Him, you belong to Him. You've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you are no longer your own. You are His. We are the Lord's. You know, some people struggle with this idea. They want a Savior, but they do not want a Lord. And that's just the truth of the matter. They want heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. Well, that's not the way that it works. We bow the knee to Christ. We call upon His name for forgiveness and salvation. He becomes our Lord, our God, our King, our Master. You know, Walter Marshall in 1692 said this, What a strange kind of salvation do they desire that care not for holiness. They would be saved by Christ and yet be out of Christ in a fleshly state. They would have their sins forgiven, not that they may walk with God in love and time to come, but that they may practice their enmity against Him without any fear of punishment. See, people want forgiveness, but they don't want Christ. And it's, that's not how it works. Christ died, He rose, He lives again, and He reigns forevermore, and He is our Lord and our Savior. He is our King, and we live unto Him. And we have to allow each other the freedom to live unto the Lord and to walk according to their own convictions, because we do indeed answer to the Lord. All right. Last point, the certainty of the judgment of the Lord. So we've talked about the, the, the reality that we all have a variety of convictions. We've talked about the fact that we do indeed stand before the Lord and that we will, we will answer to the Lord, each and every one of us. But just know this, the certainty of judgment, it is certain. There will come a day. And we are marching towards that day, day by day. And we will stand before the Lord in judgment. We'll talk about that. So verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. The certainty of the judgment of the Lord. He says, why do you show contempt for your brothers? Or your sisters? Why do you despise one another? Why do you show disdain? Know this, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You don't have to judge each other, okay? Because we all stand before the Lord and we will all be judged by God accordingly. So I just want you to be free. Can you just set yourself free? You don't have to judge other people. Isn't that a good feeling? I mean, don't we have enough going on in our own lives? Don't we have enough of our own struggles and responsibilities not to have to worry about everybody else? Isn't that a good feeling? The Lord has got this, and He's going to do a good job. He is a righteous judge. He is the only true righteous judge who will judge perfectly in holiness and goodness and perfection. As it is written, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So then we will each give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And I just want to kind of close with this idea here. I want to wrap it all up here. We all must answer to the Lord. We do have a variety of convictions, and we do have to live according to our convictions. 
There are certain things that we have to take dead serious because it is an essential to the faith and the scriptures are crystal clear. But we also have a variety of convictions in other areas and that's okay. We need to walk in those convictions. We need to be true to those convictions and we need to give each other the freedom to do that too because we all answer to the Lord. And there are two kinds of judgments at the end of the age. There are two judgments that the Bible teaches that that will fall on the world when that day comes. And one is called the great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment for those who have not trusted Christ. If you've trusted Christ, your sins have been judged on the cross. That is God's grace to you. That is God's mercy because God is a judge. And He is a righteous judge. And He has to judge wrongdoing. And look, listen, sometimes people struggle with that idea, the judgment of God. Do you feel outrage when you see the atrocity that happens in this world? Do you feel anger when you see the injustice that goes on out there? Now, how is it that we can have that anger, but God's not allowed? God who is infinitely holy, infinitely pure, the God who created all of this and it is all His, He doesn't have the right to be angry and to judge accordingly? Absolutely He does, and He will judge. And so either He has judged the sin of those who have sinned against Him on His Son, which was God's gift, that anyone who would believe on Jesus would have eternal life. You would not go before God in judgment, but your sins would be paid for there. If not, then you have to stand before God for your own sin. You have to give an account for your own sin. You have to pay that. Revelation chapter 20 says, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This was the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's heavy. It's frightening, and it should be. You want to know that your name is written in that lamb, Lamb's book of life. You don't want to be in the other book. The other book is all of our transgression against God, and we will stand before God. That book will be opened, and we have to give an account for that. Our name is not in the book of life, but our sins and our wicked deeds are in that other book. And that is the great white throne judgment. But you know, if you have trusted in Christ, all of that which was in that other book is gone. There's nothing there. It will be empty. And your name will be found in the book of life. And that's what we want. That's what, that's what God, has, God has done all of this. God has given His Son, Jesus, so that we could be found in that book of life and that our sins would be, would be gone and they would not be in that book and we would not have to stand before God on this great and terrible day. This judgment is not for those who have trusted Christ. It is for those who insist on rejecting the gift of God and standing before God and giving account for their own sin. But no, that day is coming. You don't have to stand there in that place on that day. You can be found in Christ if you would only trust Christ. If you would only turn from your sin and cry out to Him and call upon His name. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from this great and terrible day. And your name can be found in the Lamb's book of life. Well, there's a different judgment. There is a judgment for Christians. And sometimes it is referred to as the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a judgment of reward. Everything that you've done here in this life for God, you will be judged on that day for what you did and how you did it. Did you do anything for Christ while you were here? Did you do anything for Him at all? Only one life this too will pass. What was done for Christ will last. Did you do anything for Him on that day? And then how did you do it? Did you do it so that you could be seen? Did you do it so that you could receive glory, recognition by men and women, applause? Or did you do it that Christ would be made known, that Christ would be exalted? That is the judgment. 
So if anyone's ever told you that you're going to have to stand in front of this big screen, in front of all your friends and loved ones there in heaven, and every embarrassing thing that you've ever done in life flashes on that screen, maybe you've heard that. And that's like the most frightening thing in this world that you can imagine. That's not what it's going to be like, okay? So just, you know, relax on that one. But we will be judged for what we did for Christ and why we did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet though as through fire. And so what we did for the Lord in this life, did it for him and for the right reason, we will have something that will endure. We will have treasure. We will have reward. But everything that we did for the wrong reason, it will burn up right there in front of us, is, is what this is saying. And so truly Christ is the discerner of our hearts, our thoughts, our intentions. He knows our love for him. He knows our obedience. He knows our service to him. And we will stand before him that day and we'll either be rewarded or we'll be standing there with smoke on our clothes. First Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is the last, last verse. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. And so Paul says, look, I'm a steward. I'm a servant of Christ. Let us be considered as servants of Christ. That's what I've been saying, right? If you are in Jesus, what are you? A servant of Christ. We all answer to Him. He says, I'm not afraid of any human court. I'm not afraid of being judged by you or any human court. There is a judgment that I take very seriously, though, and that is the judgment seat of Christ. And He says, on that day, He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. He will reveal our hearts, our motives, what we did and why we did it. Then each one's praise will come from God. So it's a judgment of praise. It's a judgment of reward. But it, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness to Him and how we, how we, uh, how we responded to those convictions that, that we have before the Lord. And that's, again, I just want to bring it back to that, bring it full circle. We all have our convictions. We all have to stand before the Lord. We will all answer to Him, and there is a certainty of judgment on that day. So are you, are you obeying the Lord? Are you being true to those convictions that you have? Are you allowing each other to be true to their convictions? Are you pushing people around? Are you judging your brothers and sisters? Are you despising them because they take something seriously that you don't or vice versa? We're to allow each other to be free, to have Christian liberty, to enjoy the things that God has allowed them to enjoy and to do so with joy and honor unto the Lord. We're to obey the convictions that God has given us because at the end of the day, we all answer to the Lord. Amen? And I'm so glad for that. If I had to answer to anybody, I would want to answer to Him because He alone is good. He alone is faithful. I don't want to be judged by some human judge on this earth. I want to be judged by the righteous King. And I want to be found in Christ. And I want to be judged based upon the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? Don't you? I want to be found in Christ. I want to be known in Him. I want to be rewarded for what I did here in this life for Him and for His glory. And I know you do too. So let me pray for us. We're going to close. And I just want you to know, if you don't know the Lord, you can know Him right now. You can call upon His name while we're praying. Just right in your seat. You can say, I don't, I don't know you. I've never known you, but I want to know you. I want to give my life to you right now, Lord. I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn to you. Would you be my Lord? Would you be my Savior? You can do that right now. If you need to talk to a pastor or someone afterwards, we're here for you. We want to minister to you. We want to love you. We want to help you in any way that we can. And we're going to have our baptism right after the service here. So I'm going to pray. 
and then we're going to kind of make our way out there. Uh, the people getting baptized are going to change, and then we'll, uh, we'll gather around the waters of baptism. Let's praise the Lord. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are holy and that you have given to us your perfect and pure word. Lord, it is sufficient. It is more than enough. You've revealed yourself to us in your word and you have shown us how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. Lives that are a blessing to each other. Help us, Father, to live like this. Lord, help us. If there's anything that we need to repent of or turn from, God, give us the grace and the mercy that we need to do that. I know that you're moving in the hearts of people in this room right now. I know that your Holy Spirit is here. Your Holy Spirit is in each and every one of us who have trusted Christ. You're with us. And I know that your Holy Spirit is knocking on the hearts of some people in here right now. They know, Lord, that they need to say yes to you. And they have fought that for a long time. And I know that they know that right now is the time. God, give them the grace and the mercy to say yes to you right now. That they would call upon the most beautiful name, the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. Our sweet Jesus, the one who lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve so that we would be found in him, found righteous, accepted in your sight, O Father. We worship you in this place and we praise you, God, for what you're doing in the lives of the folks that are getting baptized today. Glory to your name, Father. They're making an awesome step of faith here and they're going to be, uh, they're going to have the enemy, Lord, come after them. It's inevitable. I just pray for special grace and mercy, Lord, that they would walk unto you, Jesus. They would keep their eyes fixed upon you, the, the captain of our salvation, the author and the perfecter of our salvation. God, help them, guard them, help us all. Lead us, Father, in the right way. Strengthen us, encourage us, fill us with your spirit, provide for us. Give us a love for you, God, and a passion for your glory and for your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.